Athletic. The Race F1 Tech Show, brought to you by Aramco. As Formula One heads into its summer shutdown, Gary gives his verdict on the technical progress of the top teams and the car concept choices they have made. We also talk Aston Martin's paradigm-shifting end plates and ask why this new generation of F1 cars is producing better wheel-to-wheel racing. Welcome to the Race F1 Tech Show, brought to you by Aramco. It's been a busy time for F1, with four races in five weekends heading into the summer break. And as always, Gary Anderson has been across all the technical goings-on. Gary, hello. How much have you enjoyed the season so far? Well, I think it's been very good. I mean, the thing about it that's um, interesting is I suppose the rules, the regulations have worked. The cars are able to follow each other closer for longer. I think Hungary is a big proof of that because Hungary is one of these races where it really is, you know, the guy at the front, if he's clever, um, he can win the race, even with a much, much slower car. We've seen it through many, many years. That Basically, track position at Hungary was everything. But this year it didn't work out like that. So it's uh, it definitely has changed the dynamic. And because of that, it has changed how you would go about your pit strategy at quite a few races. So interesting a whole new challenge i think for the teams and some of them are getting it right and some of them are not getting quite as right as the others yeah well that's been a big talking point the strategy side of things so far this season well as always we'll start off by giving gary free reign to talk about any technical topic he wants to so gary what's been getting your technical juices flowing in recent days well i think the thing that got a lot of cold mentions really you know at the start of the weekend was uh, the aston martin rear wing interpretation obviously these these rear wings were a major part of the new regulations as far as the wake behind the car was concerned the, the objective was to sort of minimize that wake uh make it as, uh, as little turbulence in it as possible um so the following car didn't suffer so much so the you know aston martin well it's taken time it's taken till obviously the mid-season break for somebody to find solutions or gray areas to in- investigate I think Aston Martin have done a very good job in that, in the fact that they were able to add this piece of uh, wing where the intersection between the main plane and the and the end plate, They're able to add this piece of wing vertically to act as a bit of an end plate. Basically, you're, what you're trying to do is contain the, the high-pressure air that's on the top of the wing um, uh, for longer, because the more high-pressure you can put on top of the wing, the, the low pressure underneath it will uh, be increased as well. So then the pressure differential is greater, so you get more downforce out of it. But it's all about doing it as efficiently as possible. Now, if we take the wing in general uh, this year, one of the things I was not sure of at the beginning of the season was whether we would ever see um, what we might call a very flat wing, maximum downforce wing, basically a horizontal main plane with the radius onto the end plates. Because if you have that, you will get quite a lot of spillage over the sides of the the radius where the end plate joins the the, uh, the main wing. So you get a lot of spillage over that area. So I was wondering personally that um, if we'd see sort of more V-shaped wings, I suppose, a bit more like the Ferrari run most of the time, where the sides are sort of higher, the middle is lower, and that allows the, that contains the airflow on the wing more. And I thought maybe the high downforce wings would end up looking like that. And what Aston Martin have done is a sort of exaggeration of that, I suppose you might call it. You know, they've got a fairly horizontal main plane, but they've got these end plates sticking up. So 
it, it was something that that I could see happening, um, not to the extent that Aston Martin have done it, but it was something that I would be, uh, I was a little bit confused about as to what would be defined as a high downforce wing and a, a low downforce wing. And I think we will see that. I think we will see the the Ferrari V-shaped wing, in other words, lower in the middle and higher at the ends, as the high downforce wing. And I think you could see the opposite um, for places like Monza. That would be the, that'd be the direction I would be pursuing. In other words, a wing that's higher in the middle and lower at the ends. So you're actually inviting, inviting more flow to go off the sides of the wing. Um, be interesting to see because Monza is obviously the complete contrast to Hungary. So I think we'll have to wait and see there. But it's it's about efficiency. Can you can you run the the Aston Martin theory of the end plate across all of your family of rear wings? If you can, it's going to have a massive impact on the uh, on the um, budget cap because you know it, rear wings are not cheap to build. So you got to you know you've got a new family to suit these cars up to up to now, and you have got to restart it all again. Because it's not just about sticking a bit, a bit of carbon fibre on there. It is, it is a completely integrated design. Um, so it'll be interesting to see. I think the FIA stance so is it's okay. And I've read through the regulations and I think I can see why it's okay. It's it, The regulations are very, very difficult unless you sit down and design something really um, to them to sort of see the opportunities or the, the windows that allow you to do something. So I'm assuming it is okay. Um and we'll see as the, the next races go by who exploits that a little bit further or who buys into the fact that it is quite good. But it's, it's all about efficiency, as I say. So, you you know, high uh, downforce hunger is one thing, but whenever you get to these other races where you have to make compromises, maybe it's not just as much value as, as uh, around Hungary. Well, the point about the efficiency is an interesting one. Asked Tom McCulloch at the weekend, the performance director at Aston Martin, what the plan is. And there is an intent to have that end plate geometry, for want of a better word, across its whole family of wings. But there is, as you say, the cost cap concern. So they're not actually sure at the moment how that will be rolled out. There's a desire to, but they don't necessarily have the headroom in the in the cost cap to do that. It might depend how many rear wings they, they burn their, <laughs> their way through. So interesting, they said it's an efficiency gain. Yeah, I'm, I'm a bit, uh, I'm a bit surprised at that, really. Um, I suppose because I, I don't think it's that bad for efficiency because of, obviously over the whole car, the efficiency of the whole car is what counts. So one little bit that, dra- <coughs> that drags the efficiency down a bit is not the end of the world because it will make some other stuff maybe work a sl- slightly differently, like the beam wing and the diffuser. Um, I would be surprised to see that sort of philosophy being used at a low downforce track, i.e., Monza. Um, because I think you would go the other way, but uh, we'll have to sort of, you know, I think we have to wait and see. I, I, I suppose really, if I looked at Hungary, um, did I see it jumping out as being a, a big asset? I, I don't think I did. I don't think I saw it being much better than where they should be if they had a good weekend as a team. I think they're at the minute around that sort of ninth, tenth, eleventh, twelfth position. What they seem to do is struggle in qualifying more than they should do. Um, but as far as a race car is concerned, they have a, a slightly better race car. So I, I don't think I've seen it perform a step change in their performance at Hungary that would just, to me, would justify the fact that it's all come from this rear wing and we must at all costs build them. I think I'll have to wait and see about that. But, you know, they're, they are in a, a building a building process at Aston Martin. So 
with people and ideas, I suppose you might call it. So uh, time will tell whether it really is one of those sort of things, whatever we see what other teams do as well. And you mentioned the legality of it. There's two elements to the legality argument. One, is it legal by the rules? And two, is it to the intent of the rules? Aston Martin actually say that from the simulations, the weight characteristics seem fairly benign, so it's not making the following worse. But in terms of the the strict legality, you said from looking at the rules, you think it looks legal. I know this is a very tricky question because the way the rules are written makes this really hard. Can you try and convey... Without the, without the advantage of any visual aids to make it doubly difficult, roughly why it appears to be legal? Well, again, it's, it's just how the, the, the radii are defined at, the, at that corner. Um, it doesn't actually say in the regulations where that radii has to be. The, the intention is that it's the, where the main plane joins the end plate. But... Um, that doesn't mean it has to, you know, the main plane has to be horizontal. So you can bring the main plane up. And if you take it as a, an example, again, when I'm talking about this V-shaped wing that Ferrari sort of run most of the time, you know, the, the, the main plane comes up quite gently. And what Aston Martin have done is bring the main plane up quite abruptly. And then they put the required radio on the top of it where it joins the end plate. So they, you know, they've, if you took their, their radio for that at, at the end plate and sort of drew a, a line, you know, I don't know, 15 degrees or something down from there and let it hit the main plane, that would, that would be a Ferrari wing as such. So, um, you know, it's just the fact there isn't a height for that intersection between the end plate and the and the, and the weight main plane. It says you have to have that intersection. You have to have a radius on it, but it doesn't say what height it has to be. It doesn't say it's at the main plane height or there is no height for it. So they can bring that up and they put the radius on top of it and job done. So I can see that's, that in general is compliant with the regulations. But as you say, there's, there is also a, a paragraph before that in the regulations, before they define it, in the regulations to say that the objective of this is to um, reduce the weight behind the car. Now, yeah, Aston Martin are going to say there's no difference in the weight, but maybe some others might, whenever they start researching, it might find a, a slightly different problem. So time will tell and see who jumps onto the bandwagon and, and uh, starts to do their own interpretation of it because, as I say, I, I still haven't got quite got my head around what I would do for the wings, as I say, my initial interpretation would be a, a very V-shaped wing for high downforce and more of a an upside-down U-shaped wing for um, for low downforce. But let's see what happens in Monza because that's the, the contrast that we need to see. Yeah, the whole rear wing thing has been quite interesting this season because teams haven't settled on their family of wings, which previously they under the old rules, pretty much took for granted because they knew them so well. So you see people getting caught between two stalls with their choices. So it has been an interesting one. Was there anything else you wanted to delve into? Well, it is just strategy. Um, obviously, at the end of the end of the weekend, strategy became a big talking point. And, you know, one thing about Hungary, it's, it's always been um, about track position. You know, you can win there with a much slower car um, or you can get good results with a much slower car just because you're in, uh, you've got the track position. But these cars now are able to follow better and longer, which is a complement to the regulations. Um, and I think tracks like Hungary are the first ones where you see it. The, you know, there's no real high-speed corners in Hungary, although we say that. I think if you're sitting in a Formula 1 car going around, some of them you might think they're pretty high-speed. But um, there's no real high-speed corners, so they're all the medium speed corners where racing can take part. You know, racing can, be, can play a big, a big role in it. Um, and we saw that at the weekend, I think, where people could follow each other. And the, and the old style of strategy was, 
you know, was always to make sure you did whatever you could to be as far up as you could be and then just maintain it for as long as you could do. And uh, it didn't matter if tires fell away at the end of it. You could you could uh, keep your position, but it didn't happen this year. Yeah. You know, obviously the big talking point is Ferrari. You know, they, they have, you could list, make a long list of this year's problems with strategy. And the biggest problem for me is that the management there at the moment don't stand up and say, we screwed up, you know. When you don't do that, you're not accepting what's in front of you. Yeah, maybe their car wasn't quick enough. Um, maybe they, you know, they led themselves down the wrong path with what tires they saved for the race, for the, yeah, that, the race day. All that sort of stuff. But at the end of the day, that's all part of those decisions. Um, and I think that it's happened too often now this year. They really do need to look deeply at what's happening with it. And, you know, I think you could look at Carlos Saint's position. Um, it was okay. You know, he finished fourth. Um, he he didn't do anything dramatically wrong, but he didn't do anything dramatically right. The, the big thing for me was, you know, if you put on the, the harder tyre to begin with, you, you know, George Russell started on the soft tyre, both Ferraris started on the, on the medium tyre. If you do that, what's the reason for it? Because you're going to suffer off the start line, for sure, and then you're going to contain it and you're going to be able to go longer. So if you do that, that's the objective. So the first thing is that you react to the guy that's on the soft tyre um, stopping. And, and you sort of think, why do you do that? Because you know that's what's going to happen. That's the reason you didn't put it on. You know, he got the jump on you. He led the race for X laps. And then the minute he pits, you know, one of one of the, the Ferraris came in and then the second Ferrari came in and, and suddenly it's a snowball because at that point in time, again, they went from the medium tyre to a medium tyre. So they, they blatantly said to everybody, you know, we are we are doing two stops because you have to with the regulations use two compounds. So not the fact that they were going to do two stops because that's what most, most people were going to do. But what they had said was, we've stopped early and we're, doing, we're now doing two stops. Because, you know, because that's the best way for the race. And that means that you stopped early so you don't run the first set of tyres long enough. That means you can't run the second set of tyres long enough to get to being able to run the softs to the end of the race. And so they allowed other teams to recognise that and actually abuse their tyres more to suit Ferrari's strategy because they knew that Ferrari were going to struggle at the end of the race anyway. So, and then the hard tyre, obviously, you know, nobody wanted to use that in the race at, uh, at Hungary. So, what did they do that for? I, I don't really understand. From from there's lots and lots of ways you could have done it differently, but they didn't do it differently. And uh, you know, if they'd come in at the beginning with a medium tire and put the hard tire on just as a you know sell you a dummy, we're going to try and go to the end of the race on the hard tire, and I only did you know 10, 15 laps on it and came back in again. They would have at least complied with the regulation. And if the hard tire had worked, you could have gone a long way. Other than that, you had to go a long way on the medium tires and and use the soft at some point in time, either in the middle of the race or at the end of the race. Um, but, they, you know, they never seem to learn about it. And it's just it's just confusing. It's so frustrating whenever you're sitting watching it because you know they're just throwing the race away. And it's, it's yeah, it's happened too often. This is the really curious thing because it was clear even on Friday when it was a lot warmer that the hard wasn't a great race tyre. Mario Isola at Pirelli spoke to him on Friday night and he was saying, yeah, the hard might not even be any more durable than the medium simply because it was picking up abrasions and things and it was slower. So it was clear nobody really wanted the hard. And I think nine drivers used the hard in the race. 
and one of them was Leclerc, but the other ones that did it were the ones who only carried one set of mediums through, so they were kind of backed into it. Ferrari had two mediums, they didn't they weren't in the same scenario. And the thing that really baffled me as part of Mattia Venotto's defence was that they thought they put the hard on, it would be maybe eleven laps, and then it would be quicker than the medium. But they'd never run the hard at the Hungaroring that weekend. So why were they so convinced by the data they had, which, okay, they know the tyres, they know the track historically, but it's all historical data they were going on that made them so certain that the thing that everybody up and down the pit lane was saying, oh, we want to avoid those unless we have to, thought, just how did they think that was a good idea? It's Everything points to this makes no sense. Well, it, it, to me, it seems like they had a plan and they stuck to their plan. They didn't even read the race because there was other lesser teams out there and drivers as such on the hard tyre, you know, early on in the race because of whatever circumstances. And they were struggling. So, you know, there was there was a message there to be to be read. So that's what being strategy, I always say it's a living thing. You cannot have a plan. You know, we hear A, plan A, plan B, plan C. Yes, they're all different plans, but it is a living thing. You need to be on it all the time. You know, you need to be monitoring every other car on the track because that's how you get the information. And then obviously you react to what you think is right and what other people around you that you're racing with are doing. Um, so you have to look at those other guys and say, well, actually, look, he's struggling in the hard tyre at the minute. He should, you know, they shouldn't be, he should be doing better a lot of times than that. You know, I think Magnussen was on the hard tyre at that point in time, or some of them were back there. But, you know, as I say, they, they seem to have a plan and then they're going to stick to that plan. And no matter what happens in the race, they just don't change direction. And, I, I I don't understand that. It's the all the other teams that are in competition with them. And we actually criticize Mercedes quite often on strategy because I, I don't think they're as they're as um up for it, I suppose you might call it, as Red Bull are. Red Bull are up for a lot of things. And I think in the days of Michael Schumacher we saw that. You know, I think the the Ross Braun in the days of Michael Schumacher would throw some things at Schumacher that he would have to sort of dig deep to achieve. But he would buy into it and dig deep to achieve it. And Max Verstappen's the same, you know. Um, there's there is a potential win there if you can if you can actually sort of buy into the strategy. But some of the strategies that um, Ferrari have thrown at their drivers, you know, this year and last year, just just make me laugh. Well, as we're now into F1's August shutdown, this is the perfect time for a mid-season technical review. We'll focus on the big three teams in this first part. What's really proving interesting, Gary, is that there's generally considered to be three different car concepts on the grid. The downwash concept of the side pods exemplified by Red Bull, the inwash concept of Ferrari, and then you have the Mercedes, which is on its own now with a zero side pod approach. And of course, all these side pod concepts are there to work with the underfloor, the crucial bit underneath that we can't see. Do you think that that broad classification is right as a starting point? You know, we have three concepts for sure, but they are the three top teams as such as well. So it's not just the fact, the concept of, of what the cars they've got is better than anybody else. Other people are following a path here and there, and we saw Alpine with the first one to do the, the sort of roll top bath top of the side pods to contain their flow on the top of the side pod um, and not let it spill over into the coke bottle um, so there, there, I think you could you can adapt quite a few of the, of the bits and pieces from the Ferrari and the Red Bull and make them work together um, 
Red Bull, um, Ferrari, sorry, are very aggressive on the front of the side pod, how they turn the airflow out using the uh, the section <coughs> below the radiator intake duct um, and the turning vanes. And then that means that the, the you know the Coke bottle is much more bulbous, I think, and the it's it's a, a smaller Coke bottle as such, whereas Red Bull um, do the use the flow at the front of the car to help flow at the rear of the car. So there is there is different ways of doing it, but I I, I wouldn't jump in and jump out and say that those three have got it right a hundred percent, or those two have got it right a hundred percent. I'd say that those are the teams that you'd expect to be the best performance anyway. But it is very very interesting to see what other teams how they follow it, and you know we saw Haas with their first package of developments, which you know everybody over the weekend was saying, oh, it's a white Ferrari, but. You know, I didn't see it as that personally. I, I think it's, you know, there there is a path there. Um, and you, you've got to say that that's what you would do. If you're a team that's, that's buying into doing some developments, you would look in a direction, you know. I think if uh, if Haas had come out with, a let's say, a Red Bull um, interpretation, then that would have been a bit strange that, uh, that you'd have saw that. I think it would have been very difficult to sort of justify it and get your head around it. Um, but it would, you know, it wouldn't surprise me if it had happened because it, developments is about what you start with. You know, you start in the wind tunnel. You don't start there with a, as I keep saying, a, a rectangular block of tooling board. You start there with a concept. You, you, you know, you decide in your mind. You draw something up. You get roughly the shapes you got, and then you put it in the wind tunnel and you start optimizing it. So it, it depends on what that that initial shape is as to the direction you take with it. You don't, you know, you don't sort of put a a Mercedes side pod in the wind tunnel and one day and come out the end of the next day with a with a Ferrari type side pod. It, it doesn't work that way. You'll play around with what you got for quite a long time and then you'll maybe get some revisions on it, major revisions on it. But most of these concepts and the developments have all started a while back. Um, you know, Aston Martin said they started theirs back in November or December. They're, they're stage two of their, their Mark II um, Red Bull package as such. And that's possible, but I think that what we're seeing now is the fact that these are these are developments that are coming from seeing what the cars look like at the start of the season, and then buying into understanding what the other teams were achieving with them. So, at the minute, it's an interesting season because you know the fact we had such a major regulation change, but it hasn't really changed the pecking order dramatically. It's Ferrari have obviously come forward, but we, I think they've, they've stepped forward because they were very bad before this season started, not because they're very good this season, but because they're very bad. The one sort of team I think that obviously they've they've gone the other way is, is Mercedes. Um, and Red Bull have sort of stood with stood still where they were. They haven't really changed that much um, as far as where they are in the pecking order. Somebody's somebody's gone over the top of them and for being Ferrari let frog them and uh, Mercedes have dropped back a bit. But it's interesting that they've adapted to these regulations so well and really got come to terms with it so quickly it's uh, it's, it's quite an amazing thing and looking at that battle at the front with ferrari and red bull and then occasional joining of it almost by mercedes a, a few times we're seeing cars that produce their pace around the lap quite differently overall the championship could be a lot closer than it is given how many points ferrari are throwing away so what do you make of that balance of power in the way they've approached the season technically well, yeah, I mean, I think the one that we should take there is Red Bull. You know, whenever they had their very successful seasons with, with Sebastian Vettel back in the early teens, 2010, 11, 12, 13, I think it was, 
Um, you know, they always had a car that was slow on the straight, um, but they had a car that went around corners very well. So as long as you could get away, at, you, know, you could qualify well um, with that. Um, and as long as you could get away at the beginning, you you know, you had a chance of, of well, you had a very good chance of winning races. Um, and to be honest, Mercedes were a bit like that for quite a while. Once the other teams caught up with the new power unit regulations and, and Mercedes didn't have a big power unit advantage, then the Mercedes itself was, was slower in the straight, um, but very quick, obviously, because they won a lot of championships and won a lot of races. Um, and now we're seeing Ferrari have the same sort of philosophy. You know, they keep the downforce on the car. They know they get the DRS in qualifying. So they reduce the drag in qualifying, as do the others. Um, but obviously, where you don't have DRS around the, the twisty bits, the car has a good front end, it has good grip, um, and they, they can qualify on pole. Or a lot of the time, they've qualified on pole. So that philosophy of having a car that's that's got good downforce and quick around the corners still carries on through all these all, all these years, to be honest. But now it's different with the risks the way they are. I think we, they need to. They definitely need to look at uh, DRS again. I hate the DRS philosophy because it's just artificial overtaking. Um, but you still have to have some overtaking. But at the minute, it, it doesn't look. You know, the last two races, um, just well, Austria especially before France, Austria was typical. There's three sections, you know, one after the other of DRS, which is me too far, far too much. And then obviously Hungary, it's very difficult to have DRS because the circuit's not long enough. So you have it into turn one and then and then down into turn two. Um, and again, Hungary, it was probably just okay, but it, it wouldn't. It would be better, I think, not to have it out of turn one down to turn two. I think up to turn one was probably quite adequate that there. So it's a it's a fine line between having artificial overtaking and having real overtaking. Um, but I still think that you know the the Ferrari philosophy of running with downforce, knowing that um, they get the DRS opening during the during the qualifying, they get caught up very quite often in that with, by Red Bull because of the straight line speed of the Red Bull. Um, because if Red Bull don't qualify in pole, they'll probably qualify second. If they qualify second, then they've got the DRS to overtake during the race. And uh, so it's, a, it's different philosophies. I think what you got to do really is say that Ferrari could fix their strategy problems. It would definitely change the season dramatically as to who's going to win races. You're listening to the Race F1 Tech Show, brought to you by Aramco. Aramco continuously push the limits of engineering excellence. As the global energy partner of F1, they drive a shared vision to real-world innovation that aims to lower emissions, enhance performance and accelerate human potential. Aramco, powered by HAL. We are seeing the two teams tackle their weaknesses. Obviously, Ferrari had that low downforce wing, or that no more efficient rear wing rather that ran on Leclerc's car for the first time in in Canada. That seems to have helped them on the straights. It's still not a, a, a strength, as it were, but that that's a step in the right direction. So we are we are seeing quite an interesting development war just in terms of the bits and pieces they're bringing round by round. Yeah, I mean that, that's that's the way you react to it. Obviously, you know, for Ferrari they were losing a bit too much in the in the race on the straights, and and it was easier for the Red Bull. For Red Bull, they were struggling, or for at least for Max Verstappen in the Red Bull, he was struggling a bit with the front end of the car. 
So that's the direction your development's going to take. You know, that's for sure what you'll try to make better. And Ferrari have made it a little bit better. And I think Red Bull have, have, have made it a little bit better. As they themselves said, you know, Hungary with its long corners was not not a typical circuit that they, they like too much, but they end up winning the race anyway. And as for Mercedes, you know, have they really, um, are they really in a better place right now? George Russell was on pole in Hungary. Um, but, you know, he, he, that was a mega lap. Where it came from, I don't think anybody still knows to this to this day because that was definitely a mega lap in qualifying. But if you if you look at Mercedes, I mean, the first race of the year in Bahrain, they were 0.5% off the fastest car. And, and then it went through most of the season being, you know, 0.6, 0.9, whatever. And the average right now is 0.9% um, off the fastest car. So they were better relative to the other teams at the first race of the season. Yes, they got on Poland in, uh, in Hungary, but that's just a one-off shot. Let's see what happens when we get to Spa and a couple of other races. Um, so it's very difficult to, to see, you know, what direction Mercedes should take. They're, they're definitely got themselves in a bit of a pickle. And we hear far too often from them all we're using this year to experiment because we couldn't predict the problems we've got with the wind tunnel or CFD or simulation. So the only way to do it is to, to experiment. And I think because of that, they're, they're, they're holding themselves back a little bit. Sometimes you just need to regroup and say, what we got is what we got. Let's get the best out of it. Let's not worry too much about experiment. Let's find the solution to this problem by making sure that what we've got, we're getting the best out of, because that will lead us into a better position for next year. It'll let us understand better. If you keep on experimenting, I think some people were saying, you know, they put floors on the car that they'd never had in the CFD or the wind tunnel modifications to the floor because they thought it might be worthwhile and they didn't have the CFD time or wind tunnel time to to research it. Mercedes would never have done that before. And, you know, you're talking about, you know, something you would do if you're a, a lower team, just having a, a bit of a, a pitch at it because you you sort of had a gut feel it was the right way to go. But if you really are going to understand it, you need to research it properly. Yeah, and you referenced the comparison of the performance there. It's going to be very interesting to see how things are after the summer break, given the technical directive kicks in for Spa that could change things at the front. So I'm sure we'll come back to that in a month or so's time on this podcast. Okay, we've talked in depth about the big three teams. We've got seven other teams out there, all with different approaches. One thing we should say is actually... In terms of the performance order, that's the same ranking as the Constructors' Championship order, which is interesting because normally there's a little bit of variation, but loads and loads and loads of different approaches. We've got Alpine, best of the rest, McLaren up and down, but hanging in there. Haas, have they delivered on what they should have done? So who, who's interesting you from that group? Yeah, I think the, the Alpine and McLaren battle is probably the, the one that I think is, is the best. And obviously, as we've just heard, you know, um, Alonso's heading off to pastures green, um, which is, you know, a good thing. I think Aston Martin do need somebody that they can really believe in is going to put 100% in at the weekend. I don't think they know where they are with, with Lance Stroll. Um, Sebastian, you know, if you, if you look at it all, he won his four world titles, done a great job. At Ferrari, it never really got sort of settled him down well enough. I think you know he was he was nearly there a few times, but it was very difficult. Won a few races, but 
to really put your your belief into something that somebody really wants to be there, I think they've done the right thing with getting Alonso. You know, he is mature. He's longer in the tooth. He's been around a while. He's you know still very very aggressive. So that's a good thing for them. But I think that's helped Alpine. That's what I'm saying. Really, is the fact that his the true belief in Fernando Alonso at Alpine has helped because it would be very difficult if you took the Alpine season and you had you know um, Ocon and another young guy and the season was up and down like it is really for them um, you would sort of stand back and think where are we here you know I'm not really sure but I think Fernando will will definitely make sure they know where they are uh, he doesn't he doesn't uh, pull his punches I suppose so I think he'll be a, he'll be a mess for Alpine but the 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 Alpine McLaren battle is is a big one obviously um, it's it's worth a lot in the championship, so they need to sort of sort that out. And I think again, you know, Lando Norris is doing an exceptional job, much much better job than I believed whenever he was coming in from the smaller formula. For some reason, I'm not quite sure why that was, but uh, for some reason, I believed that he wasn't at this level at all. But he is an exceptional driver, and obviously, you know, Daniel Ricciardo's struggling a bit, so that's hurting McLaren quite a bit. But those two are the ones that I think are fair and square battle. For the same sort of, I don't know, expectation of company, the same sort of size of company, the same sort of model of company. You know, they're, they're racers going racing. And um, whereas, you know, you drop back a bit and there's always reasons for other, other things going on. You know, obviously, we'd like to see Aston Martin joining that battle. We'd like to see Alpha Tori joining that battle. Haas, all of them joining that battle. But that's not happening. So I think that the main battle for me is that fourth and fifth in the, uh, in the constructors. Uh, behind the the big three as such, and see who can come out of that. McLaren and, and Alpine come out of it uh, on top. I think Hungary this end up scoring the same points. Um, Orlando was ahead of the, the others, but you know the, the lesser numbers, but the same number of points. And that's always interesting. But they so they're having a good a good ding dong. I think, and that's nice to look at and see who comes out on top of that ding dong. Alpha Tori just seemed to struggle from weekend to weekend. I'm not quite sure why that is. And as I say, Aston Martin, I think I've got a better race car than they show in qualifying. So lots of other teams have got problems to fix. But I think Alpine and and McLaren have got... They don't have problems to fix. They just have to go quicker. They just have to make the car faster to, to, to go forward. They don't have to sort of fix the other side of it. They, you know, the... The, the inconsistency or whatever because they're, they're they're good teams and they and they should be doing a good good job so I think they're the battle I like to keep an eye on. What's it going to take for some of these teams to kind of inch up and make it not a two division championship because it is two divisions again really isn't it with Ferrari and Red Bull and, and Mercedes has been in that lead group because even when they've struggled in qualifying they've pretty much always had at least the third fastest car in the races. Yeah, you know, I think I think that's where the cost cap needs time to settle in and see see how that affects it because that was the objective to stop the big boys spending spending more money than the smaller teams. Now the cost cap itself and the amount of money it is um, for a lot of teams on the grid, it would be a luxury to spend that sort of money. Um, for the top teams, they've they've had to cut back a bit and they've had to do things differently. You know, it affects stuff. You know, when you see Adrian Newey in the in the, in the garage taping up a part of a side pod you know you have to fix stuff you can't just fire a new bit on it every weekend and and you can't go out and make all these new bits that end up being circuit testing it's, it's happened forever you know let's say at the minute we, we talk about porpoising and and the fact that you couldn't research it but stuff that runs near the ground 
has always had an aerodynamic problem potentially to, to make sure you, you you understand it well enough so it's happened forever and a lot of times whenever you had big big budgets which i was never luxurious enough to have but when when teams have had big big budgets they would just make underfloors or front wings test them at the track and say oh no that doesn't you know that's too sensitive or whatever and, and they go and they skip out the back of the, the back of the workshop so that those days are being stopped now now you have to make it count and that will be interesting but it won't it won't happen overnight i i would have no idea how that cost cap is really going to be placed and and you know contained as such and really really that every team can walk away with confidence that the big boys aren't spending somehow more money or more <coughs> research time on stuff uh, than the smaller guys. So, but let's give it a couple of years and see if it does shut the grid up because that that's the objective of it. It's not about getting the, the young, the smaller teams to be cleverer or the bigger teams to be stu- more stupid. It's about trying to give them the same amount of money to spend. Yeah, equalising the overall performance potential. I think it's worth talking about the slowest team, Williams, because they started with a Mercedes-esque size zero side pod approach. At Silverstone, they first ran a more Red Bull style in terms of overall shape, but it did have some Ferrari in there as well. And Williams have also found that the car's now quite wind sensitive, which they partly expected because they did sacrifice a bit on the sensitivity to try and just get that overall load so what do you make of the path Williams has taken because it's probably the car that's had the most dramatic change visually yeah yeah it has I mean it's it's one of those sort of things I think every Formula 1 car uh, has got sensitivity to to wind be it tailwind headwind or sidewind and then it depends on, on how robust the aerodynamic surfaces are on those cars I mean if you if you exploit the surfaces to a maximum, um, then the wind will have more effect on it, and that that's quite normal, to be honest. I think you know, whenever I was doing my wind tunnel research, I'd always look at where you could adjust the front wing angle to, or if you're putting different front angle angled front wing end plates on the on the wind tunnel model, you know, where you got gains and where it started to trip over at, and make sure you stay away from the trip over point. Um, but if you're if you're just pushing for as much downforce as you can get then you can very easily get yourself into a fairly critical state. And that's not where you want to be. So Williams, a couple of years ago, um, when George Russell was driving for them, was you know was very adamant that the, the car was very, very bad in, in windy conditions. Um, how, you, how you can say that without really knowing what the other cars are like, I, I'm not quite sure. Um, you can just look at your competitiveness against other teams when conditions are changing and if the only thing that's changing is the wind and you you suddenly lose lose a second relative to to some other teams then then you've obviously got a problem there somewhere and you have to sort of dig deep to find out why i i've always been of the mind that i need to build a car that that the driver has confidence in and isn't going to bite him all the time and that means that it has to have a fairly robust aerodynamic surfaces on it but in saying that then you know on a good day perfect conditions you won't have the car that some other teams will have but you'll have a car on more condi- more uh, conditions more more days you'll have a car in in, in, uh, in a decent performance level but you won't have that ultimate performance level and that's interesting you know whenever we you know michael schumacher drove the the jordan 191 the, the one thing with that car it's a long long time ago now but the, the one thing with that car was the fact that 
it had a very stable rear end under braking traction the whole bit the rear end of it was <coughs> was good um but it had a little bit of, a, a bit of low speed understeer and when he went to drive for uh, for benetton um you know i spoke to him at the end of the year but you know what what was the big differences in the two cars and he just said you know that the benetton had a better front end and low speed corners but the jordan was much much better in fast corners but I wouldn't have said we had the numbers of downforce, the actual total downforce, anywhere near what the Benetton was. I think it was just because it was very stable in, in the fast corners. Um, so you, I've always had that philosophy of if you can build a car that gives the driver confidence, you'll get you some lap time out of it. Um, but you can only make so many compromises. And as I say, for, for Williams going that route and building a car that they that they know is more wind-sensitive, I'd be, I'd be a bit um, disappointed in that route, to be honest. Well, if you're listening to this podcast, you must recognise the value of asking questions. At Aramco, answering questions helps them engineer a better future. So if you'd like to know how something works in F1, we'd be delighted for you to send us a question. And if you're lucky, we might just answer it on a future episode. You can record a voice note on your phone and send it to podcasts at therace.com. That's podcasts at therace.com. And don't forget the hyphen in the race. And also, if you do leave a voice note, remember to tell us who you are. Alternatively, you can simply send us an email. Our question today is from Mark Bildner, and this is one that was sent in a while ago, but we've held on to for our mid-season tech review podcast as it fits in so well. The question is, we've seen much cleaner racing this season. Is this new car spec partly responsible for the lines the drivers are taking, or is it due more to other factors such as changes to stewarding, shuffling of the competitive order, or the need to avoid the cost of collisions in such an important development year? So I guess the start of that question, Gary, is is that a technical question? Does the answer lie in the technical regulations? Yes, I, I think it does. Um, obviously, as you know, Hungary is a typical track. Um, we often see there, or we often seen there in the past, you know, this knock your front wing off um, magnetic approach to, to overtaking. You know, you dive into the first corner and and go up the inside, and you just can't get the car stopped, or you can't get the car to turn. And that is that is because of the loss of downforce that you had in in, uh, in previous years with the cars. Now the cars have got less loss of downforce. Um, you know they are still a decent a second to two seconds to maybe three seconds at some circuits slower than last year's cars. So they are heavier. Don't think they would have the the ultimate downforce of last year's cars, but they have more more stable downforce. I don't. I don't agree with the percentages that the uh, F F one sort of predict that you know we were losing sixty percent of front downforce or something last year, and, and this year we're only losing twenty percent or whatever. But but it is a decent amount in the right direction, and that means that the car is more responsive. That means whenever you are diving up the inside of somebody, your car is nearer to what it, it should be. You don't make the same mistakes so easily. Um, so I think that's that's part of the racing being being better, um, and it does allow the drivers to take sort of slightly different lines. It does allow the driver to to stay out of the way of the other driver a bit more, whereas before it wasn't like that. You know, you, you, once you got behind somebody, you suddenly become just a passenger into this device that was needing to go faster than the guy you're trying to pass and losing a huge amount of downforce. So I think the the line the racing lines can be a bit different, um, and I think the overtaking is partly due to that. And again, the, the cost cap obviously does come into it. 
But I don't think there's many drivers out there that actually barrel into a corner and think, oh, I better not damage my front wing because, you know, the cost cap. They they have realised that survival is how you get points at the end of a race. And, you know, you've got to look after it a little bit more. We, we, we've seen in the past quite a lot of damage, stupidly damage being done very, very stupidly, just by going into a gap that wasn't there and suddenly you lose the front wing. I think people are realise now that's not really really what's the practical solution to it all so it's a bit of everything i believe but i do think the regulations are the one thing that has brought the the formula to a more controlled formula i don't you know if you take hungary for example i i don't think we had any major incidents that you talk about people running into somebody else it just it just didn't happen really so um yeah a bit of everything i suppose i think you were suggesting there that drivers are learning which is an extraordinary claim um, no, I, you know, they've got to be part of the team that learns and there's, there's obviously got to be a philosophy within there that they understand that, you know, points are only rewarded to the guys that make the checkered flag and making the checkered flag, the only way you'll do that is survive. You know, we've had it many, many times we've heard the old thing about Le Mans, you know, you, you can't win Le Mans at the first corner. You can definitely lose it, but you can't win it. And it's sort of sleeping down a little bit to, you know, Formula One's the same. You cannot win it at the first corner. And I think that, you know, that, again, taking Hungary, you know, George Russell, pole position, Hungary, the, the track that has the least overtaken manoeuvres sort of really uh, over the years, been won from the front more often than anybody else, probably, any other track probably, but yet he didn't win the race, you know. So it's, it's, it's changed. Formula One has changed with these new regulations. And now we need to close the field up a bit more with the cost cap. And that needs to make sure that it's policed correctly. And that's that's the one thing that would worry me. But Formula One has changed with these new regulations and it has made the racing better, more consistent um, during a race. You can follow for longer for sure. All that stuff. Everything that was the objective of these new regulations has been achieved. And I'm very pleased to see that. Well, thanks very much to Mark Bildner for that question and a great answer from Gary. Thanks very much, Gary, for your insight. As always, it'll be interesting to come back at the end of the season and have another look at the teams and how things have changed since this mid-season review. So join us next week for more from Gary. You've been listening to the Race F1 Tech Show brought to you by Aramco. Be sure to like, follow or subscribe on your favourite podcast app so you never miss an episode.